This is the sermon podcast for Bering Memorial United Methodist Church, a reconciling congregation located deep in the heart of Houston, Texas. For more information, please go to bearingumc.org. Yesterday was the Pride Festival and the parade, and this whole month has been a celebration of pride throughout the country. So it seemed appropriate that in the midst of our summer series called Can I Get a Witness, that we would talk today about pride as vital Christian witness. Okay, Pastor, that's kind of stretching it a little bit, isn't it? I mean, doesn't the Bible say that pride goeth before a fall and that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? And so if pride is a sin, how can you say that pride is vital Christian witness? I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) Pride is a sin. The pride that the Bible talks about that's a sin is a form of arrogance that says who I am and what I'm capable of accomplishing is attributable solely to me, not to God and not to all of those who have poured themselves into my life. It's an inflated sense of ego that says I'm better than you, I'm more capable than you, I'm more deserving than you. I'm more entitled than you. And therefore, I have the right to use you, to exclude you, to step on you, to deprive you in order that I might have what I deserve. And that kind of pride is a sin. But there's a form of pride that is vital for us to embrace as Christian witness. I'd like to talk about that today. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at our text from Scripture today to see if we can discern what is this pride that is vital to our Christian witness and how do we claim it for ourselves and also for others. Let's pray. Gracious God, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not, that we are your creatures. We thank you that you have made us in your image and that we can stand proud in that image. We thank you that you have created all of us in your image. We ask that you would teach us how to stand in that image so that we might know ourselves as loved by you and then stand for others that they might know the same. Now take the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. May they be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. So I went on vacation a week and a half ago, and I had this sermon all written. And then a week and a half ago, the Attorney General of the United States used the Bible or shall I say misused it, to defend the abuse of children. This scripture that he quoted from Romans 13 has been used throughout history to support allowing oppressive government action to continue while the church does nothing. And it is a misused 
of Scripture. There is nothing in the Bible to support separating children from their parents as an act of deterrence. It is an abuse of power, in my opinion. So, I get this news, and I'm sitting on a horse, and I'm like, okay. (laughs) I just wrote this sermon about pride. I did a preview about it. How are we going to talk about pride as vital Christian witness and address this issue which we have to address? Well, if we understand godly pride as convicted humility about who we are in God and who others are in God and who God calls us to be in the world and what God calls us to stand for, then they actually go hand in hand. And we have this incredible text from the Old Testament to help us. So I want to look at this text of David and Goliath, a story we all know. We learned as children about this shepherd boy who comes with his sling and his five stones and kills the giant and saves the Israeli army. But I want to look at it today from a slightly different perspective of what it means to claim our identity in God, to understand that the abilities that God has given us are enough to then stand for others and against oppression. So let's look at the story. When we enter the story in our text today, the Philistine army and the army of Israel are locked in this mortal combat. It's a vicious fight. But the Philistines have a giant. They have a champion who is clothed in a helmet that weighs 125 pounds that if he dropped it on you, could kill you. And he's got a javelin and a spear and a sword, and he's covered in this metal armor, and he's thrown out a challenge. And the entire Israeli army, including the king, is hiding in absolute terror. Now David's brothers are among the Israeli soldiers. David is a nobody. David is way down the pecking order in the line of family, of sons of Jesse, and in that culture, he was totally insignificant. No authority, no power. He's also a shepherd, which is the most offensive profession in that culture and not respected at all, and he's a kid. His dad calls him and says, your brothers need provisions, I've made a package, I want you to take it to them on the front lines. And so David sets out and arrives, finding the two armies across from each other, separated by a wadi, a creek. And as he goes to find his brothers and finds them, this huge giant comes out and issues his challenge again. Now I can imagine the conversation among the soldiers when the challenge comes. Send out a champion, fight me. Whoever wins, wins the whole war. Here's the conversation. Are you kidding? This is impossible. We'd be defeated before we even started. How could we possibly take him on? Look at his armor. We don't have anything like that. He's too big. He's too powerful. He's a bully. They have all the resources on their side. There's no way we can do this. We're just fill in the blank. Ever felt that way? Yeah. 
I would have had that same conversation. And then here comes this little whippersnapper kid who gets up there and says, don't dismay, I'll fight the giant. I can hear King Saul, David, that's really sweet of you, honey. <laughs> but you're just a kid. I mean, I've got trained soldiers. I'm trained. I have armor. You can't beat this giant. But David knows who David is. And David knows who his God is. And David knows that what God has given him is enough. And so he's not dissuaded. He says to Saul, no. I will fight this giant and I will win. I'm not afraid of the bully. And so Saul gives in, but Saul still tries to define David. Okay, if you're going to fight, then you got to be like me. I'm going to put my tunic on you. I'm going to put my armor on you. You're going to have to look and act and fight like me and be white and straight and documented and powerful. If you want to count... If you think you're going to be anybody, but David knows who he is. David knows who his God is. And David knows that what his God has given him is enough. And he refuses to be defined by Saul and says, no, I'm not going to use this. I'm going to use my sling. And so David goes out to fight Goliath. And he goes down to the creek and he picks up five smooth stones and puts them in his pocket. Now as he comes out, the giant has a belly laugh. <laughs> what? Who do you think you are? And he talks with disdain about David. You're nothing. I'm going to eat you for lunch. It's a good thing the giant didn't have a cell phone. I can imagine the tweets. <laughs> and he's got the support of the Philistine media behind him. You idiot. You fool. This is your fault anyway. You think you can take me on? Ha. I've got more power. I've got more armor. I'm going to eat you for lunch. Bring it on. I bet some of the folks, even in his own army, were shaking their heads. Who do you think you are? We've got, we tried. We failed. You're an idiot. But David knows who he is. David knows who his God is. And David knows that what he has is enough. So David goes out, and as the giant approaches, he reaches in his pocket and takes out one of those stones and put it, puts it in his sling, and he brings the giant down. Okay, nice story, Diane. What does that have to do with Pride as vital Christian witness or addressing this immigration travesty. Well, first of all, it tells us that if we're going to take on giants, bullies, power, 
We need to know who we are. We need to be secure in our identity in God, who God created each of us and all of us together to be, and who that God is and what that God stands for, and that if God calls us to stand up for those who are being oppressed and to stand against oppression, we have enough to do it. We just have to own who we are and what we have to offer. So the first thing this story tells us is that pride in who we are in God and in the God who called us is essential for us to take on oppression in the world. When we know who we are, let them say what they will. Let them say all manner of evil against us. Let them misuse scripture and even the book of discipline to tell us that we're not that. And then unless we become just like them, we have no power, we have no place, we have no authority because we know otherwise. And so we stand in who we are and who our God is with convicted humility. That's the first thing. The second thing is that what we have is enough. Oh, but they have money. They have the media. They have a good news magazine. They have the ear of a massive group that's well organized. They have a clause in the book of discipline. There's no way we can take that on. We've tried before and we failed. Oh, you're talking about taking on the president and an administration and Congress. Who are we? We are children of God. A God who says, let my people go. Who says, I have called you to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, to stand against oppression. And what I've given you is enough. The only question is, are we willing to use what we've got? Do we know who we are? Do we know who our God is? Do we believe that our God will fight for us? For them? So if we are willing, what are our five smooth stones? We all have them. The first one we've just talked about. It's our identity. It's knowing who we are, whose we are, and that even if we fail, we cannot fail because we will have planted the seeds of righteousness for a future that is coming and that God will bring to bear. And so we stand confident in who we are. The second thing we have is actually this passage that got misused and misquoted. We're going to have a class. David and I have already been working on it about how we use scripture, how we interpret it, what its authority is, and how we apply it in situations like this 
and in this whole debate about the clobber passages. And we're going to look at that because one of the problems in the church right now is that we don't know how to use this book. We don't understand its authority or how to apply it and interpret it. And it's being misused to support child abuse. It's child abuse to tell an LGBTQ child that there is something wrong with their identity that was given to them by God. It is child abuse in the name of deterrence to rip a child from their parents because their parents have come here seeking refuge and safety. And there is nothing in that book that supports it. We'll get to that. But let's talk about that honor the government passage. We live in a democracy. That's a government by the people for the people. It's not a government by the president or the administration for the president and the administration. It's not a government by Congress for Congress. It's not a government by special interests for special interests. It's a government by the people for the people. And the way you honor that government is you hold it accountable. That is foundational to a democracy. When our government crosses the line, we vote it out of office. We have the power and the responsibility to speak to power, and that's the way we honor our government. Randy's going to be out there registering voters. If you're not registered, you need to go register. And then we need to work on educating ourselves about the voting patterns on these issues of those who currently represent us and those who are vying for position. And then we need to act. That's a stone in our pouch. What's the next stone? It's community. We build and embody the community that we are seeking to implement out there. We become the image of justice. We become the image of inclusion. Now, we consider ourselves inclusive, but I can tell you that every single one of us have categories of people that we consider other, that we have a story about that we tell in our heads because of some experience or because of something we've read or heard. And the call of God is to go meet the other, to go intentionally build a relationship and hear their story, listen to their life, invite them into ours, and begin to embrace a community that looks like the world, that looks like Houston. That's how we accomplish justice in the earth. We build it ourselves and we become the voice for others. The fourth stone is prayer. Intentional, sustained prayer and fasting. Don't like that one. But I'm convinced that Howard and Peter are alive today because you prayed. And that they're recovering from an accident they shouldn't have lived through because you've been praying for them. We've got to commit ourselves to praying around what's coming in February, 
the delegation that's going to be gathering at the call session that's going to decide whether or not the United Methodist Church is going to live out its theology of inclusion or not. We've got to be in sustained prayer around this whole immigration issue, which, yes, is complicated, but it's not. The gospel is pretty clear. The thing about praying consistently and together about something is that God helps us to get still enough to listen, to see, to find a way forward through the wilderness that seems impossible. Because God has a way through this wilderness. And we need to be listening so that we can start stepping into God's future. The fifth stone is something that's unique to you. The, the reason God called us together is a body. I don't have the gifts that you have. Some of you don't have a lot of time. Some of you are tired of raising kids and working and feel like you can't do anything, but all you need is a pebble. We can all do something. There's something that each of you has that's unique to you that you can contribute to this. Maybe you're just a little toe. But I can tell you without that little toe, the whole body becomes unstable. Maybe you're just an eyelid. Without that eyelid, the eye becomes diseased and is at risk of injury. Every single one of us matter, and the puzzle is not complete if that piece is missing. So what do you have to offer? Because together, it's going to be more than enough. The invitation today is to claim our identity in Christ. To stand proudly with convicted humility in who we are, who our God is, and what our God has called us to do and be in the world, and then to stand for others for the same thing. To say, to shout proudly, I'm a child of God. You're a child of God. I matter, but you also matter. I'm enough. You're enough. This is me. This is us. And together we stand and fall, and we are not leaving anyone behind. Thank you.